Good day to our listeners here at the Middle Podcast. My name is Jim Nelson. I'll be your host for the next 15 minutes or so as we talk through the Word of God together, centered as always around our church's previous Sunday service. The Middle Podcast is a digital ministry of Living Word Church in Oak Harbor, Washington. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for joining us this week, and I'm hopeful this is helpful to you throughout this coming week and beyond. Now, two Sundays ago, Pastor Drew took us through chapter 3 in the Old Testament book of Habakkuk. And I know, I know, I'm a sermon behind at this point, and it's totally my fault. I just didn't get this completed uh, in time to release before last Sunday's service. But I've got to stick with this prophet rather than move past chapter 3, because this chapter is, is fabulous for many reasons. But one reason in particular, we are in a fall series on this podcast looking at biblical parallels, and here's the bottom line. If you ever wanted an example of this intricate linking of all the ancient literatures together through references to the other parts of the Old Testament story, this is the chapter for you. It is chock full of these parallel references, so much so that we'll be unable in our time together to talk today through all of them. So my plan is to give you kind of the big picture of how this response is laid out and then end with an amazing encouragement from Habakkuk that I think will be handy to keep in our back pockets of responses as we walk through what is often a crazy and unpredictable and turbulent life as followers of Christ. So if you're ready, I'm all set. Let's get started. So let's just catch up for a little bit of time as to what we have seen so far in this book. In chapter 1, we see the prophet calling out to God because he's frustrated about God's lack of response to the corruption and to the oppression and the idol worship and the moral failure and the rebellion that Habakkuk sees all around him. And what's remarkable is he's not calling out the pagan kingdoms that surround Judah. Rather, the prophet is calling out the behavior and the rebelliousness in his own people, the Israelites, those who are God's quote-unquote chosen people. Why isn't God cleaning up this mess? And so God responds with, be patient, be patient. This is my prophet. I am doing something about it. And as a matter of fact, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, that evil and corrupt Babylonian empire, to bring justice on the rebellious nature of his own people. Now, as you can imagine, that kind of takes Habakkuk by surprise. I think it really reveals something about the condition of his own heart. Just think back. Did we read of the prophet pleading with God to change the hard hearts of his fellow countrymen and draw them back to himself? We didn't read that. Instead, we just read that the prophet wants them punished. Punishment, punishment, punishment for their behavior. But when Habakkuk realized that he is also going to be caught up in God's discipline and judgment, well, by the end of the chapter, we find him kind of backtracking. We hear the argument that the Babylonians are far worse than Israel. How how could God allow such a violent kingdom to be used as a tool of justice? How can he allow this and choose not to show mercy towards his people? But he kind of ends that back and forth argument there in the beginning of chapter two is put it put himself in a posture of hearing God's response okay like that's my argument God what's your response and I don't get the feeling that his heart was in a good place I think he expects God to relent to his complaint but in chapter two we see God's response 
And I love the response in that God tells us that, yes, the Chaldeans will bring God's justice on the nation of Judah, but have confidence because he will also deal with the injustices and the violence of the Babylonians. They're not getting a free pass. And he does this by cataloging the rebellious offenses of the Babylonians and remember them from chapter 2 and the woes that he spoke of. Woe because that nation operated in greed through unjust gain. Woe because they sought self-preservation at the expense of others. Woe because they maintained power through oppression and slavery. And woe because they lived immorally celebrating behaviors like gluttony and drunkenness. And then the final woe because their faith and spirituality was expressed through idol worship. The whole point of chapter 2 was to get us to see these offenses of the Chaldeans while acknowledging that these were the same offenses that Habakkuk was seeing in his own people. And then furthermore, to provoke us to see these same things in our communities, in our culture today, in our families, and answer the question, do these things still grieve God today? That was a powerful, powerful weekend message. And then that brings us up to chapter 3. And here's what we get right off the bat. Chapter 3 is a song. My first response is, well, that's kind of weird. A song in response to woes. I just don't get it. But if I can think back kind of in this parallel framework that we've been talking through for some weeks now, it just makes sense. Before and after this prophet came along, singing has been part of what it means to be a follower of God. We read of spiritual beings around the throne singing, holy, holy, holy. We read in Exodus, Moses and the now free Israelites sing in celebration of God's salvation and deliverance. And in David's time, women came out from the cities to sing about their victory over the Philistines. The temple work was staffed with musicians. And in the New Testament, just one example from the New Testament, there's many, but at the Last Supper, Matthew tells us that Jesus and his disciples sang a psalm. Karl Barth was a prominent Reformed pastor back in the 19th century, and he summed it up very nicely by saying this, the Christian church sings. It's not a choral society. It's singing is not a concert, but from an inner and material necessity, we sing. The church sings, so I shouldn't be surprised at all that Habakkuk pens a song in response to God's work in the human condition. So let's take a quick look at just the opening stanza of that song, which for us in our Bibles is chapter 3, verse 2. He says this, Lord, I have heard the report about you. Lord, I stand in awe of your deeds. Revive your work in these years. Make it known in these years, in your wrath, remember mercy. That's the opening, and here's what's going on. Habakkuk ended chapter 1 with a plea that God consider his own holiness and spare the Israelites' rebellion. Surely you won't do what you say you're going to do. And in chapter 2, that becomes, oh no, it will be done, and you can mark it on your calendar. The Chaldeans are coming. So what we begin to see is Habakkuk's final posture in chapter 3. In that posture, he's singing a song of what he knows about God deep down. And that's the past faithfulness of God towards his people. That's what the prophet knows better than anything else at that moment. He can't control what's going on in his present, and he can't control what's going to happen in his future. But he knows that God has been faithful to his people since the beginning, 
and will be faithful in bringing them through even this period of justice. So let me reread what you just heard. I'll do it in the NLT version, which is a bit friendlier and easier to hear, I guess, today to see. Here's what Habakkuk's final posture looks like. He says, I have heard all about you, Lord. So Habakkuk knows his people's ancient scriptures and what God did in those ancient scriptures. I am filled with awe by your amazing works. In this time of our deep need, help us again as you did in years gone by. And in your anger, remember your mercy. And then what's really cool and it's along this parallel theme is that the song recounts those past deeds of salvation and provision for his people. So read through this chapter again. We won't go through it, but I'll just kind of give you an overview here. As you read through, do you see imagery of these parallel references? It's kind of hard to recognize at times. I get that. But do you see references to the Exodus, the leading of the people through the desert, his presence on Mount Sinai, the damming up of the Jordan River, answering Joshua's prayer for more sunlight, even that one. So many links back to the whole story of God's work through his people's experience. And this prophet's posture is not because the Israelites are awesome. He's beginning to posture himself in that way. As we know, they weren't necessarily awesome. There were glimpses of glory at times, but more often than not, they were plagued with disobedience and rebellion. But through all that, God stayed true to his promises and was with them through the good times and the not-so-good times. That's where Habakkuk's confidence resides at the end of this divine conversation. Okay, this is coming just as you say, God, and here's where I stand on your promises of mercy. Ultimately, Habakkuk's experience reminds me a lot of the story of Job. So I spent some time rereading that account this week, and I would guess that many of us are familiar with Job and his circumstances very quickly here. God allows the devil to basically just take Everything from Job, from his vast possessions to his children to his livelihood, everything is taken away. And if you read through it, it's it's pretty gut-wrenching. Even his wife says, just curse God and die. And his best friends give him some really terrible advice. It's, it's a pretty miserable experience that Job is going through. As we close with the last few verses of Habakkuk chapter 3, Let me show you some of the gut-wrenching realities that the prophet is anticipating facing in God's discipline and justice. And then he lands with some hope. So starting in verse 17, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Now we'll take just a break right there real quick and ask what is Habakkuk describing? The prophet is acknowledging that very soon now, the near future, it's going to be pretty miserable, right? Metaphorically, the crops are failing, the sheep being cut out from the flock, no cows in the barn. In the short times, these circumstances are going to hurt. They're going to cause some pain. But he's also addressing the distant future also because What happens to next year's crop if this year's crop does not produce seeds? What happens to next year's cattle if this year's cattle are not in the stalls during mating season, right? You get it? Habakkuk is describing a pretty grim existence for some time to come. 
So earlier I said that Habakkuk was operating out of a hard heart, much like he accused his fellow Israelites of. I think we see in the next two verses that hope kind of come through that show this conversation with God. We see his heart softening and the prophet maturing as a follower of God. He says this, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. Let's bring this into today a little bit. Following Jesus, much like following God into exile, doesn't mean we don't have those difficult days. We have those days. Some of us have those difficult months, and some of you listening out there may have difficult years that you've experienced in your circumstances where our happiness just kind of falls apart. And if it hasn't happened yet, we're all really just one phone call away from this kind of existence and despair. I like the Bible because it's real. We are never promised that seamless and stress-free and grief-free life. And as a matter of fact, if you look at the history of following Jesus, it's almost like all of that is actually part of it. The promise of the gospel is that Jesus is with us in that and more. It's a promise that his spirit will be in us and in that we walk with confidence that our God is a merciful God. The Apostle Paul sums it up way better than I can. And we'll just close with this. Here's Romans 8, 35 through 39. Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? No, despite all of these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. And Paul says, I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love, neither death nor life, nor angels or demons, our fears for today, nor our weary worries about tomorrow. None of that. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or on the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord kind of puts a nice statement on it, right? A nice exclamation point on the love of Christ and the mercy of Christ. So I pray that we live our lives with all the pressures and all the stresses around us. I pray that we can carry ourselves confident in the presence of Jesus's love in our life, in the livelihood of our church, and we do life in our neighborhoods, in our communities, that we can exhibit the nature and character of a merciful Jesus as much as his spirit leads us. All right, that'll put a cap on the book of Habakkuk. Thank you for listening. I'm hopeful that you'll join us for our next episode. God bless and have a great week.